Let's pray. Father, it is... uh, God, I just pray for a humble heart and a bold voice today. Lord, I thank you, God, for the gathering of the saints. I thank you for our musicians and singers and their faithfulness to lead us in song and proclaiming to you, God, our gratefulness. God, I thank you for the gospel, for the fact that we have redemption through Christ. I I pray, Lord, that as I preach today, that he would be magnified. Above all, that he would be magnified. In his name I pray, amen. Turn with me to the book of Joel, chapter 2. If you were here last time, as about a month ago that we were in Joel, and we saw the beginning of repentance in verses 12 through 14. And there was much focus on repentance in the last sermon. And it was about inner repentance. The heart must change first. In verse 13, it says, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. So we talked a lot about how repentance first must come on the inside. Tear your heart open. And it's not always about the exterior. But now, we're going to move on into verses, verse 15 is where we'll start today. We're going to see what the means of enacting repentance looks like. We're going to see what repentance should look like after it's happened on the inside. So let, let me just read verses 15 through 19 and then we'll go through it. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. So now, back to verse 15, we're seeing what does this outward display of repentance look like. He told them in the, ver- in the verses previous, Cut your heart. Change your heart. There needs to be something within you to change. Your mind is to change. It's a changing of the way you think from horizontally to vertically. But now he's saying once that happens, there's a way to go about yourself. There's a way to go about what that looks like. And so we see in verse 15, blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet in Zion. If you turn back, well, just right there at the first of this chapter, he said, blow the trumpet. 
So the same trumpet that he, he said in verse 1 to sound an alarm in his holy mountains. In verse 1, he was warning them of the invasion. Sounding out this, remember, if you, if you haven't been here, the first part of the book is all about this huge invasion of locusts that's coming in and absolutely destroying everything. Utter desolation. They're not leaving anything in their path. Nothing's left. And he's saying, blow the trumpet, get the people ready, this invasion's coming. And so in, at the first part of chapter 2, he's saying, get ready. It's a, it's a sounding of the alarm that God's judgment has come upon them. God is the, one that, is the one that is sending the locusts. And its judgment is on them, so blow the trumpet so everybody is aware. Now, we see blow the trumpet... Not to gather defenses, not to put up nets to try to stop the locusts. Remember, we talked about the weapons would be, would be worthless against this invasion. Not to try to gather weapons against the enemy. No, why does he say blow the trumpet? Why was the trumpet sounded? It's to call a religious assembly. It's any other method would be in vain. Any other reason to gather, any other trumpet that could sound would not work. Why? Because this isn't fighting against man. This isn't fighting against flesh and blood. It isn't fighting against the locusts. The locusts aren't the problem. Their sin is the problem. Their sin of the people is what brought, has brought the judgment of God. He's using locusts. He could use anything he wants. He's used to flood. He's used locusts more than once. He's used drought. He is in control of his creation, and he will judge his creation. But this is his people, right? So he's, he's got a reason for this, as we're going to see. Palmer Robertson, a, a commentator, said, The work of repentance cannot be left to the whim of the individual conscience. Bring them together. Call them together into assembly. Why? Because the work of repentance can't be left to you. An assembly must be called for the set purpose of seeking the Lord. And by coming together for this assembly, the people would openly acknowledge their sin. So that's the first thing he does. And then he goes on here. Verse 15. He says, or verse 16. He's going to tell us who should be there. Who should be at the assembly? Verse 16, it says, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom come out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. In short, who's going to be there? Everybody. Everybody. Even, I mean, this is what, you can see the urgency here. The reason he gives these specifics is, he is very making it very clear the urgency of the situation. God's judgment is on you. You don't have time for anything else. The people that would usually be exempt from the assembly, he's saying, not today. You drop it and you come. The bridegroom. The bridegroom is in the bridal chamber. He's just gotten married. They're, they're on their honeymoon, right? Drop it. 
come to the assembly. The bride, almost, she's getting ready to be married. She's in there getting all dolled up. and No, not today. That does not take precedence over this. Normally, there would be an exception made for those people. Not this time. The, the mothers who are nursing, that'll wait. They might cry. It doesn't matter. The babies are going to be there. The older people, everybody needs to be there. This is the urgency that we see in this verse. And, and remember, this specifically is talking about the judgment that's come, come upon God's people as a whole. It's coming on the nation. And this is how we should respond if God's judgment is coming on his people as a group, which we would see it today as the church, which I think we're actually seeing this happen. I think we're seeing God's chastisement on his bride. But there's also more to it than that. There's also an individual repentance we can look at here. Because the body of Christ is made up of individuals, right? And so if there's sin in the bride of Christ, it's because there's sin in individuals. So there has to be repentance in the individuals before the body of Christ will turn the direction, correct? And so as we look at the individual repentance, what should we do? We need to have this same type of urgency when we're talking about individuals. What if the whole assembly is not under chastisement, but you are? And you know if you are, if you belong to God, He does not leave you out there in your sin. He will convict you. At some point, you will go, something's wrong. At some point, one of His other people will come to you and say, what is going on? You're doing this. At some point, you'll open up His Word And you'll read something that will convict you and God will put you in chastisement until repentance comes. But we need to have this same urgency that we see in verse 16 in our individual lives. So you've sinned against the Lord and he has now brought you in conviction. You are now made aware of your sin. What are you to do? What are you to do? And some of you are thinking right now about sin that is in your life. And what are you to do? Repent. Turn around. And it's first by rendering the, your heart. Cut to the heart. Dig down. Examine yourself. And then you pray to God, to the God of repentance, that your heart would change. That your mind would change. You pray to Him that your focus would leave yourself. Because when you look at sin, ultimately... No matter what it is, we can look at every specific sin that there is, and it all usually comes down to pride or selfishness of some sort. And so pray to God that your mind, your eyes would be taken off of yourself and put on Christ. And then, that's the inward repentance, and then we need to change the direction of your outside motion. Blow the trumpet in your mind and return to the sacred assembly. When you find yourself in sin, when you find yourself wandering away from God, straying away from the truth, this is how you are to be. Drop everything and get right with God. What's more important than that? 
I mean, we all, and, and trust me, I am fully aware of my own shortcomings in this. I get distracted. I have a lot of things going on in this world, and we all do, and we all get busy, and we have kids, and we have jobs, and we have other family, and maybe we have parents that are needing a lot of our attention. But when you find yourself straying away from the Word of God and straying away from His people, what are we to do? None of that is more important than your relationship with Jesus. Blow the trumpet and get back to Him. And for many, this may be literally returning to the assembly of God's people. You say you're a Christian, but you don't even go to church? This is something the world, the heathen, quite understands that Christians are supposed to go to church. The sinners recognize that. It may be, maybe, a, a, a require a return or a first-time visit to the gathering of saints that aren't on Sunday morning. Do you guys know we do other things with our church besides Sunday morning? We do. We have prayer meetings once a month. We have small groups once a month. We have fellowship meal where we sit and fellowship with the saints and get to know one another. We have other things going on that we feel necessary to draw us closer together so that we can draw together closer to God. But you can't do that if you're not here. You don't have, listen closely to this, you do not have the ability to cause your heart's posture to change. It's an impossibility. You don't have the ability to repent. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I remember there was a time I had, uh, I don't even remember what the particular sin was, but I had, I had strayed away from God and I knew it. I knew that my relationship with Christ was not what it should be. Not that it's ever what it should be, but it was not what it had been. And I could not. I wanted that. I wanted to break. I wanted to, to weep over my sins. You realize you can't do that on your own? I was trying. It was a strange thing to me, and I think God was teaching me through it. And I had... Um, I had listened to some sermons, I had read in some scriptures, I had prayed. It just wasn't there. I just continued. It was almost like I didn't quite understand it. And I put in a sermon jam. I don't know if you guys ever listen to sermon jams. If you don't, you, you may not like them. I do. It's where somebody takes just parts of sermons, puts a little bit of music, kind of background beat or something to it, and... Um, they're encouraging to me. Sometimes it'll be different pastors put together in one sermon jam, and that's the way this one was. I had it on a CD, and I put it in the truck. And I was driving, and I listened to one. It was a sermon jam by Paul Washer. And I listened to it thinking, I knew what, I knew what it said. I had listened to it enough times, I knew what was in there. And I put it in, and I was playing it, and thinking, this will break me. This will bring me back to Christ. And I listened to it, and I was like, nothing. My mind starts wondering. I'm driving down the road, and there's kind of a lull in between. There may have been a whole other one in between. They're usually three or four minutes long. And all of a sudden, there was one comes on on this same CD by a guy named Bob Jennings. Some of you knew him before he passed away. 
And he has this kind of a higher-pitched voice, not a radio voice by any means. And he was talking about this. He, it was a, he was reading the first couple of verses of Galatians. And it, it, to the point where, well, let me just turn over there. Because I want to read it. He was reading the first two verses, or three verses, of Galatians. And he's just, all he's doing is reading it. And there's a little bit of a music in the background. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. And then it, when he said, grace to you and peace from the God, God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who, and when he said, who gave himself for our sins, I broke so hard I almost had to pull over. I was like, what? What? All of the... But man, I was thankful. And he broke my hard heart at that point towards whatever the sin was. And he pulled me back into himself. That's the God of repentance. We don't have the ability... To repent. We don't have that. We can't change our heart's posture. We can try and we can pray to the God who can. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. And we don't have the ability to direct our outside path along the way that the Holy Spirit wants us to go. We can make it look good. Right? Our outside path, we can make it look good to everybody else. When this was going on in my life, this thing that I'm talking about, and I don't remember, it was only two or three days. But nobody else knew it. I could keep going the way I was going. Nobody knew it, but I did. And God did. And that's what you, that's what this all gets down to. And you cannot, you can make it look good on the outside, but you can't actually go the direction of the Holy Spirit because if you're needing to repent, He's not going to show you the way. He's not going to show you the way you should be going until you get back to Christ. And so it's His work that does this. So you need the work of the Holy Spirit and you need the Word of God. And listen to this. You don't only need the reading of the Word of God. Reading it is not all that He gave us. You need to hear the Word of God preached. That is one of the gifts to the church that He has given us, that the outward preaching of the Word of God and the exhortation that comes with it from a preacher standing behind a pulpit is necessary for our continued walk with Christ. Period. You need God's people to come alongside you and help you with this repentance. If you didn't hear Isaiah's sermon a few weeks ago when I was gone, um, it's online, it's on our website, sovereign, sgbca.org. Go listen to it, because he does a great job of showing us 
how much God uses the body of Christ for our sanctification. And he talks about how that is one of the means that God uses us in order to keep us saved. Yes, if God has saved you, you will be completed. And he has means of doing that, and the church is one of them. And you're costing yourself, you're costing yourself growth when you're not gathering with his people. And you also need the prayers of the saints. The biggest mistake I made in that story I told you was I had not told anybody about it. That's foolishness on my part. When you're struggling and when you know that God is pushing, holding you at arm's length, why? Because he wants you to repent. He's chastising you. You're under some sort of judgment. And we're not talking eternal judgment. But you're under his chastisement. He's disciplining you. What should you do? You need to tell your brothers and sisters. Why? So they can pray for you. So they can come alongside you and help you with this. And that he will bring you back. In short, how do you draw closer to God? Again, you do it first in the heart, in the quiet solitude through prayer and scripture. And then you do it in public. How do you draw closer to God? By drawing closer to his people. Christianity is not a private religion. It's not private. This idea of me and God, we got our thing going. No, that's not how he designed us. That's not how he designed his church. He brought us into the body of Christ, his church, his bride. And when you are not gathering with his people, you are, you are hurting yourself and you're also hurting his church because he has a place for each of us. John 13.34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And you can't do that if you're not with one another. And of course there's circumstances. I don't, there's circumstances where people cannot be here. There's circumstances where people cannot be in church, and that's not what I'm talking about. In those circumstances, if it's a real circumstance, not an excuse, we can all find an excuse. I'm talking about real-life providential circumstances. Somebody's in a nursing home, or somebody's sick, or, you know, there's real physical limitations, then the church should be going to them. That's how it, that's how it should work. Now, in verse 17, he says, Let the priests who minister the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? And now we see the instruction Once the assembly has been gathered, once the people have heard the trumpet call and come together at the temple, now we see the priests, the ministers of God, we see the instructions to them. And so this one's coming to me, not that the first part didn't as well, because we're also part of the assembly. This one's coming to the elders, this one's coming to pastors and preachers. He says... To stand 
between the altar and the porch. And what, this is the altar that he's talking about here. He's talking about the temple. And in the outer court, or in the, in the, in the court of the temple, there was a brazen altar where they would offer the sacrifices of the animals. And they would put them on the, it was a pretty good size altar, fire underneath. They would roast them um, as a sacrifice to the Lord. And so this was no doubt probably the most conspicuous place to stand. This was the place that they could stand and be seen and heard the best inside the temple. And he's saying, stand there. And what are they to do? Preach? No. First thing he says to do is to weep. To weep. And then he tells them to say something. And what's he say? Spare your people, O Lord. So the first thing that the preacher, the minister of God's people is to do when these times are upon us is to weep. The first thing we're to do when somebody comes into sin, and we know it, is to weep. We should weep over one another's sin. We should weep over our own sin. We should weep over the sin of our congregation. And we should weep over the sin of the church at large. The visible church of Jesus right now. Weep. And then cry out to God on behalf of ourselves and the people. They're standing there in a place where many sacrifices had been made. Many. At the time, I don't know, I mean, there's no telling how many animals had been sacrificed to the Lord at that point. There's no telling how many grain offerings had been made and how many offerings of wine, of the vine, had been made there. And they're standing there now calling the sacred assembly and there's no sacrifice to be made. Everything is desolate. The animals have starved. And no doubt, many people had starved at that point. And so it wouldn't have been hard to find a weeping and cry out to God on behalf of themselves and the people. And here we can bridge. We can bridge to God's ministers today because we are actively seeing God's judgment on this nation. If you don't believe that, you're not paying attention. God is actively turning the people over to a reprobate mind. And I think that we're even seeing it on the visible church. There is a turning away from the truth of God's word in ways that we've never seen before in this country. And it's time for God's ministers to stand in the public places and weep for her. And to cry out on behalf of God's people. Now it could be that God's using that to rightly divide the word of truth. He's using it to rightly divide the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. And I do believe that's what it is. But he says, do not give your heritage to reproach. Do not give your heritage to reproach. The heritage that we're talking about is the church. It's the bride of Christ. By the way, it's not America. Okay, let's make this clear. I don't think, I don't think we, I don't see this attitude here, but I do see it in a lot of places. The United States can rise and fall, and it can be replaced by a hundred governments 
But the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That does not mean if the United States falls, somehow God has failed. There's a lot of people, I think, somehow unite those two in God and country. And it doesn't, doesn't really matter what order they put that in. The reality is, God here, United States here, low, right? That doesn't mean you, te- you can't have some patriotism. It doesn't mean you can't strive and, and desire democracy and the Republic of the United States and, and value the Constitution. But the reality is governments have risen and fell since the beginning of time. And we will continue to see that. But his church is what's going to stand solid. His church is what's going to see through that. And that's why it's extremely important that we do not, that we pray when we, when we weep and when we pray, we pray that you do not give your heritage to reproach. Do not let this reproach come on the church. Can it come destroy the United States? Yes, it can. Can it destroy Great Britain and all of Europe and the whole Western world? Yes, it can, but it will not destroy his church. Do not let this reproach come on us. Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon said, Lord, send your life throughout the entire church. Visit your church. Restore sound doctrine and holy, earnest living. Take away from professing Christians their love of frivolities, their attempts to meet the world on its own ground, and give back the old love of the doctrine of the cross and Christ. May free grace and dying love again be the music that refreshes the church And makes her heart exceedingly glad. And how much can we pray that today? How much can we pray that for my own self? My love of frivolities? It's time for them to fall away. The attempts to meet the world on its own ground. How many of us have been guilty of that? And how is the church guilty of that? And I can pray with Spurgeon here. Lord... Return us to sound doctrine. Return us to a love for the Word of God. Return, return us to the doctrine of the cross and of Christ. The church, the bride, she is the one we are to weep over and pray for as we see here. Oh God, don't let this sinful generation infiltrate your church. So it's been a rough uh, chapter and a half here. Lots of judgment. Lots of doom. So y'all ready for some good news? I am. Look at verse 18. We see the good news. And I'm not going to get too much into this. Um, and we're, I'm actually probably going to start here again next month. But in verse 18 it says, The Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. Oh, how blessed we are when the God Almighty shows us pity. How awesome is that? You know, we look at pity as kind of a bad thing in our culture and things. And I don't want your pity. You know, you hear that kind of thing. Listen, you may not want the pity of somebody else. That's fine. But I'm going to tell you right now, you want the pity of the Lord. Because we need it. 
We need his pity. We need his mercy. We need his grace. And that's what he's saying. When the repentance comes, and what we're seeing here, we're seeing the nation of Israel repent. We're seeing them turn back to God. The plague has worked. It's causing them to change their mind. And now it says the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. This is the restoration. God does not turn his back on his people. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He uses judgment to bring you back to him. And praise God for it. Praise God for that. And he uses judgment to bring us back to him. Now look at verse 19. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Here is his response to the repentance of his people. He will provide restoration. Palmer Robertson said it this way, Restoration of a broken life should inspire excitement greater than that which is aroused by the recovery of a lost treasure. You think about finding... The the treasure hunters are out there. There's real people that do this. And they've found ships worth billions Sunken ships that were full of gold during the, during the gold rush, right? And they're bringing the gold back around and, and they find ships that are worth billions upon billions of dollars. Man, how exciting would that be if you were the one to find it, right? They found a couple little coins and they started digging and there's this ship. That would be pretty big news. And what Palmer's saying here is, it should inspire excitement greater than that which is aroused by the recovery of a lost treasure. And he's so right. Greater than silver and gold, right? It's the one who finds Christ. When he restores the prodigal son, is that not greater than any treasure on earth? The angels, do you think the angels rejoice in heaven when somebody strikes it rich? When somebody hits oil, when somebody's stock market flips over and they're now a millionaire? No. They don't care. But the angels in heaven rejoice when one comes to repentance. And when one is restored, one that is a born-again believer and he way, goes wayward and he's restored, that is this reason for celebration. And that's what we see in verse 19. He's going to send grain and new wine and oil. Now remember, remember back in chapter 1, everything was gone. The locusts had destroyed it all. And If you were here, you remember how I even talked about the seeds for the next year's crops were gone. What are we going to do? We don't even have anything to plant next year if the locusts happen to leave. Total devastation. But what now? The sacred assembly has been called. Repentance has occurred. What happens? God will send the grain. God will send the wine. And God will send the oil. What does that mean? It means the crops will once again grow. The barley is already sprouting. You may not be able to see it. It may be under the ground still. The seed, the root starts to come out. And the root is going down. 
to make an anchor before you ever see the plant. And that's how God operates. Maybe putting a root in your heart right now that's about to flourish. The vineyard has been restored. The olive trees return to their production. How is this possible? It was total devastation. You know, it's a funny thing about our God. By the word of his mouth, he can restore it all. And he will restore the sacrifices. He will restore the grain offering and the wine offering. They've been restored. Worship is restored when his people repent and return to him. And so that brings us right to, this is providence, that we're going to have communion today. Because it brings us right into our communion today. That is what he has called us to do today. We have a grain offering, right? We're going to take unleavened bread in a remembrance of Jesus. We have a drink offering that has been extended to us by the Lord Jesus. So, and, and get this. When this was referring to the grain offering and the drink offering in the book of Joel... It was in preparation of him. They were a type and a shadow of the Christ that was to come. Jesus had not yet come. The Messiah had not yet come. But they took of these grain offerings and they took of the drink offerings in preparation to show that he was coming. I believe the Messiah is coming. And it's going to be by his body and his blood that we will be saved. And now we have a type. We have a metaphor that points us back to the Christ who did come. So the grain offering that we take, the unleavened bread made of grain, it's a type of his body. It's to remind us of his body that was broken for us. We have a drink offering to remind us of the blood that was shed on our behalf. And this is important. Just as God removed the offering for a time from his people, we saw it here in Joel. He removed the offering. They were not able to make the offering that he commanded them to make. He told them to offer the grain. He told them to offer the wine. They didn't have it to offer. Why? Because he removed it. And there's a time that we have, that this offering has to be removed from God's people today as well. So let me explain. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 23 through 29. This is our communion text, right? This is where Paul is giving the instructions for communion. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And this is the part I want to get to here. Therefore, 
Whoever eats this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this should be first done by you. In verse 27 and again in 29, Paul tells us that we should not eat this bread or drink this cup unworthily. Okay, and there's two things that you should consider in this. First off, if you haven't been born again, if you haven't trusted in Christ alone, apart from your works, then you should abstain from this today. This is not for you. This is for believers in Jesus Christ and His grace. And the second one is if you have unrepentant sin in your life, or you're at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, then you should abstain from this. And many times you're the only one that knows. Verse 28 says to examine yourself. Examine yourself and see where your heart is. And if you are to abstain, then abstain and then go and correct the situation. If you are needing to repent, do it now. If you are needing, if you are at odds, then then make it right. Matthew twenty three and twenty four, Matthew chapter five twenty three and twenty four says, if you bring your gift to the altar, and the and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So maybe that needs to happen today. I don't know. I don't know who is who it is that needs to hear this. I don't know who it is that needs to abstain. Maybe it's nobody. I hope it's not. But this is important that we understand this for now and in the future. This is the time to repent and reconcile first to God and then to others. Now, once you have examined yourself and your conscience is clear, hear this. God does not turn his back on his people. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And he uses judgment to bring you back to him. He has given us victory over sin and death. He has given his body and his blood on our behalf. And this ordinance that we're going to take is to remind us of that. This is to remind us that he didn't leave his people to the locusts. It was pretty dire, those first couple of chapters. It was pretty bleak to read. It was pretty hard to read the judgment. But he didn't leave them there. He used the locusts to bring his people back to himself. And no matter what your situation, no matter how bleak or dire it may seem, This today is here to remind you that Jesus is the restorer of grain and wine. He is the restorer of souls, and we can rest in that.